Hello, hello, and welcome into TYT's The Conversation. It is your host, Adrian Lawrence. And today I am bringing you up first New York Times reporter and author of The White Wall, How Big Finance Bankrupts Black America. Emily Flitter, thank you so much for joining us, Emily. Thank you for having me, it's great to be here. And it's great to have you here because I know that you did some dig deeping or some <laughs> digging deep as far as it's concerned when it comes to really the financial industry and the barriers that are put in place in terms of racial access and opportunity. What sparked you to write The White Wall? Well, I started to hear some stories about Wall Street employees facing discrimination. And at first, I sort of took them as so many other things come into us as journalists, you know, as sort of like one off sad stories, but then they really started to add up. And um, I was also talking to a lawyer who had um, sued all of the major banks for discrimination. And she told me, you don't understand this problem is so much worse. It's so much worse than gender discrimination, for instance. And so few people are focusing on it. So the more I looked into it um, and wrote a, a, you know, a few isolated stories, the more I realized that there was just so much there um, and that it needed to get a treatment that, that allowed the whole picture to be seen all at once. Wow, and it sounds like it was quite the task, really given the extent of this racism that was going on. And I know you had mentioned employees in the whole employment context, but I'm guessing this is something that also trickled down to the work that was actually performed in terms of meeting clients and customers. Well, sure, I mean, the the book now takes um, lots of different components of the financial system and examines them individually almost as if they're bricks in a wall. And one of those bricks is the customer experience. The book begins with emails that I saw that were passing back and forth between tellers at different JP Morgan Chase branches, where the tellers were warning each other about suspicious customers. It's not strange that they were doing that because there are all kinds of attempts made all the time to scam banks out of their money. I mean, it's a bank, it's got money, someone's gonna try to get it. But some of the emails didn't describe suspicious behavior like trying to use a stolen bank card to withdraw money or presenting a fake ID. They just described black people. So there was one that said African American man tried to cash a check from a business in Texas. It's really unclear what's wrong with that. So I started to see that that's what the tellers were thinking when black customers were walking into the bank and they were being immediately treated differently. Yeah, I definitely can relate to that. Generally, as we're seeing now, especially with social media and people having access to phones and cameras, is that the black experience is often one in which you're just very existence or trying to live your life is very much. Um, uh, scrutinized, criminalized, uh, and it's very, very upsetting. And also, I'm sure to some extent, when it comes to this uh, institutionalized, the structural racism that is going on in these financial institutions, I'm guessing it has a legacy that goes pretty far back, right? There are some ties to slavery here. Well, I wanted to figure out what banks really owed people who they had mistreated. 
not just now, but going back through the 20th century when banks and municipal leaders and real estate agents got together and decided not to give services to black residents in cities across the country. That was redlining and redlining still happens, but it's not you know, overt with maps and agreements that are written down and things like that. Um, and I wanted to go even farther back and see what the bank's links to slavery have been or were. Um, Nicole Hannah-Jones really inspired me to do this with some of her writing in the first uh, few installments of the 1619 Project, which was a New York Times Magazine um, project that looked at the black experience starting in 1619 when the first slave ship uh, landed on the US East Coast or you know what would become the US East Coast. But what I was where I was also coming from was just the idea that after that these companies, some of these banks are so old and they've been, they've benefited so much from the entire history of, basically extracting wealth from the black community, whether it's by enslaving people or taking their property and their money and not giving them the same services that white people were getting. That I wanted to see what, you know, where you could start. And so I started to look at the links and I found for instance that Citigroup, which is which brags a lot about being 200 years old or older. Um, has a, a huge, hugely important founding figure named Moses Taylor, who made all of his money that he then you know used to govern city and potentially even support city through a financial crisis in the Cuban sugar trade, which was entirely all of the labor that went into producing Cuban sugar at that time in the 1830s was slave labor and it was it was a ghastly situation and city has never acknowledged that publicly the first time they ever said anything about it was when i asked them about it i was wondering if you had confronted them and their response um so i guess if you can tell us how did they respond when you confronted them with it well i wanted to have all of my ducks in a row when i went to them so i had historical Sources. I cited other scholarly works about the history of city. I cited other inquiries into the origins of institutions and their connections to slavery. And it just so happens that Moses Taylor's, I think, son-in-law, and then his son were huge donors to Princeton. And Princeton did its own study into the origins of their wealth and their connections to slavery. So I just had a ton of material and I took all of this material to City and said, look, when I looked on your website, the only thing you say about Moses Taylor is that he was a commodities trader who helped finance the Union side of the Civil War. What about all this other stuff? And they said, well, we did a review several years ago and didn't think that we found any evidence that city as an institution and its predecessors had profited from slavery. Um, essentially the the history of Moses Taylor they had decided was outside of the scope of that uh, inquiry. And that they, they now admit that he has what they describe as disturbing ties to slavery. 
And then they ended their statement by saying, but we're trying to make it better and we've committed a billion dollars to advance racial equity in this country. And so and then in my book, I then talk about what these pledges that these big banks, cuz they've all made them, what they really mean. Yes, that should be interesting. I'm sure readers would want to get their hands on that. Because as we know, there is a lot of performative diversity, equity and inclusion. And also attempted rectification of some of these historic acts that have really enabled people to be in the positions of power they are in today. And so when you did look at all of these different financial institutions, you looked at their history, their ongoings, how they treat customers, clients, as well as those individuals who work for them. Kind of was there an overarching pattern of racism that you just were able to unequivocally see? Yes, and I just want to emphasize that the, you know, if you're a bank employee and you're watching this interview, you're like, oh my God, she's calling everybody evil and I'm not evil. And that's not my goal here. My goal is to point out all of the the really regular and powerful yet subtle slights and injustices that black customers and black employees of the financial industry have to face. And a lot of times nobody's thinking about it consciously, but it keeps happening. And then when these groups who are the victims try to get justice, they can't. And unless we all take a deep breath and realize that this is happening and it happens constantly and it's having a huge effect, we're not gonna be able to move forward. So yes, everyone has to play a role here and everyone has to be far more aware of what's happening. Yeah, and I would imagine that that's extremely important as we have more and more of these conversations about trying to ensure there's some kind of reparations or acknowledgement of the history and past. Because as many of us know, it is something that's necessary to even consider healing moving forward. And so when it comes to readers of the white wall, what do you think they're gonna gain the most? Well, I really hope that the stories of the individual people who shared their experiences with me will help readers live inside somebody else's skin and understand how hard daily life can be. And I hope that that will convince people to be more compassionate, be more open to hearing about other people's experiences and then think twice before they judge why somebody is doing something. That could be a very powerful thing, orchestrating in some sense that, well, I guess that sense of empathy that is an innate part of the human experience. And so for those out there who would love to get their hands on your book, where can they find it? Bookstores, Amazon, any place that you can buy books and it's on Audible and Kindle too. So they're all the formats available. I read the Audible book myself. Fantastic, thank you so much. It's Emily Flitter, New York Times reporter and author of The White Wall, How Big Finance Bankrupts Black America. We have another game changing progressive book about to hit the streets tomorrow in fact. And that is In Their Names, written by Lenore Anderson, president of Alliance for Safety and Justice. Thank you so much for joining us, Lenore. Great to be here. 
Yeah, so congratulations on the launch of In Their Names, which becomes available today. How does In Their Names contribute to the conversation on criminal justice reform? Well, you know, a lot of people when they're turning on the TV these days, they're gonna see a lot of hyperbole. You know, this idea of crime and law and order as the solution is kind of a big topic. This is a book that's offering a different perspective. When we look at the impact of law and order policies from back when they began in the 80s and 90s, we can see that they didn't actually achieve safety or helping victims. This is a critical message for the dialogue that's happening right now. I would imagine so, very much so, and something that's extremely important. I know that David Kennedy, director of National Network for Safe Communities, and also one of my former professors at John Jay College of Criminal Justice. Well, he said about your book that it's one of the most effective criminal justice, that you're the one of one of the most effective criminal justice reformers America has ever had that you're taking a break from your frontline work to show the damage that has come from misrepresenting victims, why respecting victims would change everything, and what a system built on real justice for victims looks like. This seminal book provides a roadmap to a saner and more effective system. And that's a very, very powerful statement from a very well informed man. And so I'm wondering, where do you propose we start when it comes to building a new safety movement really to fix our very broken criminal justice system? Well, the big failure of the tough on crime era in the 80s and 90s was that it was supposed to be about victims' rights, but very little talking to victims occurred in developing that approach to crime policy. The first proposal I'm making is that we collect new action rather than just focusing at criminal justice to talk to people actually being hurt and find out what their safety needs are and what their proposals are as it relates to solutions. This kind of information can be a game changer for public safety strategies. And why do you think it necessarily would be a game changer to really plug into what the victims needs are? Well, one of the things that we found, my organization, we've surveyed about 10,000 victims of crime over the last decade. And we found a couple of critical pieces of information out. First, the criminal justice system doesn't actually respond to most crime and violence. Most people who are hurt by crime and violence don't see justice in a courtroom and don't get access to healing services. So that's one big gap that you learn that can be addressed. The other thing that we've learned in our work is that most victims of crime actually prefer a response to safety issues that's more rehabilitative and a lot less about maximum punishment. So this idea that we've done all this mass incarceration in the name of victims, but then when you actually talk to victims, you hear a totally different story. It's one about violence prevention, trauma recovery, mental health reentry. Those are the safety priorities that we would be investing in the most if we were listening to people who have been unprotected. So what I'm hearing is that people want more focus on kind of that rehabilitative angle as opposed to the punitive angle. And yet it's kind of flip flopped with how our system has been doing it. Is that accurate? Yeah, and it's caused quite a bit of damage to approach it this way. You know, One of the things I talk about in the book is this 
um, this idea of a hierarchy of harm. Um, at the same time that we're seeing racial discrimination in terms of and racial disparities in terms of who's incarcerated, we're also seeing racial disparities in terms of victims get access to help and which do not. That's the same, that's two sides of the same coin there. And so one of the big reasons we really need to think differently about this is most people who are hurt by crime and violence, especially survivors of color, survivors from low income communities are not getting support. And that puts them in a more vulnerable situation likely to be hurt again. So it's really time to abandon that old way of looking at it. And I know we've evolved a lot as a society in terms of our ability to access information. So I'd like to think the vast majority of people are now somewhat at least aware that our criminal justice system has significant inequities built into it, particularly when it comes to racial disparities and who finds himself in the system versus who doesn't, so on and so forth. Do you think that this spreading of knowledge is what's playing a role more in victims' desires to see rehabilitative approaches as opposed to punitive? Yeah, I think that the country has come a long way since the 80s and 90s in terms of a broader popular awareness of the racial disparities in our system. And that certainly has a positive impact on everyone from survivors to voters. Uh, to looking at this issue differently and seeing what the kind of solutions are. What's exciting and hopeful about the moment we're in is that survivors are building the solutions at the neighborhood level all across the country. Um, you know, there's great examples of survivor led safety uh, programs that could go much further in terms of stopping that cycle of crime. Just one example in you know Newark, New Jersey, um, survivor leaders partnered with the mayor and the police department. Uh, the Newark community street team has been doing grassroots street outreach, conflict mediation, and safe passages for kids to get to school, trauma recovery services for victims. That city saw a, sh- a reduced homicide rate. Um, at a time when other cities across the country are seeing an increased rate. So you can see the difference it makes when you really engage with uh, people at the neighborhood level. Wow, it sounds like a lot of divides have been bridged with that more um, community based approach. As far as it concerns um, maybe state level or local financial investments, like in California with the Department of Victim Services. How is that proven to be in terms of effectiveness when it comes to programs and support provided to victims? Well, there's been a lot of challenges in getting needed victim compensation relocation assistance to victims of crime. There was a huge amount of money that's been put set aside for victims at the federal and the state level. But when you look at the data, a lot of survivors have not been able to access that. You know, we just put out a report last week called Crime Survivors Speak, where we found that 96% of victims of crime did not get compensation assistance. This is a travesty when you think about it, especially for people who are repeat victims of crime. The most harmed have been the least helped. We have started doing some innovative efforts to expand the kind of programs that victims can get access to. One great model that we've been championing is called the Trauma Recovery Center. It's neighborhood based, it's 
both long-term mental health support, but also crisis assistance for things like filling out compensation applications. Huge improvement, um, you know, we see reduced homelessness, reduced substance use disorder for victims who have been able to access that trauma recovery center model. And um, you know, we've been able to expand it from just one in California. There's now 41 across the country. And our hope is that uh, this new safety movement will result in every neighborhood having a trauma recovery center. That would be a very powerful thing. And I know a lot of people in communities would appreciate that, especially as the GOP is pushing this narrative that crime is skyrocketing and whatnot. Be great if it actually invested in people to, you know, in some way fit these narratives. But those are yeah. just um, but in terms of in their names, what really encouraged you to say this is the right time for me to write this book? Well, you know, we're living in a moment where there's a resurgence of rhetoric around law and order. Um, voters' concerns around safety are the right concerns to have, to be sure. But it's concerning if we're going to go back to the failed strategies of the past. Um, the rhetoric in the political ads these days um, sounds like kind of a Groundhog's Day. We've been here before as a nation, and it was uh, really a failure, not just in skyrocketing incarceration, bloated state budgets, broken prison systems. But also, and importantly, in failing to actually help victims or stop that cycle of crime. So I felt like it was urgent to talk about this right now while we're again reconsidering the direction of crime policy in the country. And I know those in the industry, those who do the research and those who do the work on the ground, that they are receiving your book in such an incredibly positive way and they love to uplift it. But how about reaching individuals who don't necessarily have this knowledge? Have you seen any kind of response yet in terms of the sampling? Well, you know, my organization, we work in states as diverse as, you know, Michigan, Texas, Florida, California, Illinois. We bring groups of survivors up to state capitals to sit down with legislators of all political backgrounds. And what we found is that when you can have that human connection, when you can really talk to people who have been hurt by crime and violence for whom the justice system didn't investigate the case, didn't actually follow up or share information and didn't provide any services. When you can tell that story, it kind of doesn't matter what the political background is. It's kind of it's a breakthrough for the listener and it's helped us build change. Wow, that is a really powerful thing. And I'm sure there are a number of individuals out there who are extremely grateful for the work that your organization does, as well as really giving them a voice in this book and documenting why it would be so impactful to uplift those voices and ensure they're supported. So thank you so much for that. And I know this is an exciting day with you or for you with this book launch. And so I'm wondering if you can tell the viewers out there where they can get their hands on in their names. In Their Names is available in any of your major bookstore outlets. Lots of good independent stores are carrying it. You can go to bookshop.org or you could go to Amazon as well. It's available there and you can kind of get it anywhere. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much for coming by and also with sharing this insight. We really appreciate it. That's Lenore Anderson, president of Alliance for Safety and Justice, also the author of the book that just dropped today in their names.